Hello. Welcome to Laminiforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Laminiforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. This episode, however, I wanted to do something different. Today's guest is Emmett Penny, a writer whose work I edited when I worked for the website Invisible Oranges. Recently, one of Emmett's best articles for the site about the material conditions that led to new metal's popularity started to make the rounds on Twitter. Around the same time, I was doing a deep dive into the discography of Korn, the band that inarguably made new metal a trend in the 1990s. The timing felt fortuitous, so I reached out to Emmett and asked him if he wanted to talk about Korn at length for the podcast. Our ensuing conversation is in part a summary of Emmett's original article, as well as our collective analysis of Korn's impact and importance to the American cultural landscape in the late 20th century. A quick heads up, Korn sing very bluntly about singer Jonathan Davis's experience being sexually abused as a child, and Emmett and I discuss this part of their music directly. If that's something that you are uncomfortable with, I totally understand. Thank you for listening. Yeah, so you went in chronological order. Um, I was dealing with sort of the emotional toll of getting laid off. So I did mm-hmm. not put as much research into this as I normally do when I look at anything new metal, which has been like a weird critical obsession of mine since I think college. Like everything that goes into that new metal piece that you published in IO of mine was stuff I started to think about probably the summer before my junior year of college. I mean, that's as good a place to start as any, because that's kind of why I wanted to call you and have this conversation is because that particular piece was getting circulated. As you mentioned off mic, that piece does have a handful of ardent fans that bring it up every once in a while. And so it it does the rounds on Twitter, Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, it's got a zombie quality to it, you know, (laughs) like it just never really seems to fully die every once in a while. I had some guy, he follows me on Twitter now. He's like a reporter like in, I don't know, like Kansas City or something. I can't even remember. Uh, but he like reached out to me like a few months ago and he was just like, hey, I just found this piece. Like, it was just a really sweet like <laughs> DM to get, you know? And I was just like, who the, f- like who keeps finding this, you know? I don't hear about anything else that I've published ever. Like all that stuff is just mm-hmm. lost in the ether. And I had like a piece go viral in like 2017. Was that like the, the talk show host uh, yeah, piece? Yeah, lecture porn, the vulgar yes. art of liberal narcissism. Yeah, like that one blew up largely because people like Mike Cernovich <laughs> tweeted it out. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, wild times. Yeah, so it's just a zombie piece. And for, for listeners who don't know, Ian and I – Came in contact through, I think, Greg Obis over at mm-hmm. Born Yesterday Records. Um, and Greg and I went to high school and then college together. And we're recording students at Bennington College and um, and are really, really close friends. And you guys linked up in Chicago. And so I started to try to launch what was going to be a freelance career. And I had this idea for a piece on new metal and sort of the... 
idea of America before the 2008 financial crisis that was also the real estate crisis of suburbia. And Greg was basically like, I can only think of one person that might ever be interested in that, and that's Ian Corey, and he's an editor over at Invisible Oranges now. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds fine. I like Ian's music, so I'll just send him an email. And I ended up writing this maybe over long, it's like 3,000 word piece, sort of looking at that idea. It is the only thing like approaching a quote unquote, you know, like Marxist materialist reading of new metal. Because um, I ended up reading all these books about like uh, suburbia and some sociological studies on like problems common in suburban, usually white suburban teenagers as they became like latchkey kids in the 90s and as the family unit started to disintegrate. And so that's where all this came from is that like uh, Ian is one of these other people that grew to not just critically dismiss new metal as like a phase that happens to you when you're 12 and sort of growing up in that milieu. And it popped up again as it does because it has a few fans and like some of the dudes from Chapo were talking about it or whatever, or not, they weren't talking about my piece. <laughs> Somebody wanted them to read my piece and they were having their own discussion in the thread. I don't want to talk myself up too much here. And I guess, Ian, you've been sort of like reevaluating corn, and you just reached out to me anyway, and we're just like, you want to give this a go? And I'm like always down to talk about corn because <laughs> they are fascinating as a band. They're kind of the new metal band in a lot of ways, but what I often find with bands that are sort of at the forefront of a particular genre or of a particular like wave of bands is that they typically are also kind of outliers. Like they don't fit the mold of what most other new metal bands are. Jonathan Davis, the singer of Korn doesn't really rap. All of the sort of stereotypes of new metal exist in their music, but are also slightly off kilter in a, in a way compared to Limbiscuit, who I think were kind of pitched straight down the middle at the American consciousness in a way that Korn were not. No, Korn was doing something totally different. I mean, Korn, you know, I encourage everybody listening to go back to listen to their first record because it came out in 1994. And it is insane to me that that record gets released like, you know, when did Kurt Cobain dies around that time? Yeah. And yeah, around 93, I think. 93, yeah, like not too long after In Utero comes out. And that's sort of like the mm -hmm. end of the grunge moment, right? Like, you know, Soundgarden is still huge after that. You know, Pearl Jam's still huge after that. But the idea of it as this like insurgent musical moment dies. And like the biggest rock record, I think, that came out in 1994 was Green Day's Dookie, right? Yep. So to see something like Korn's first, Korn's first album sounds like avant, like avant-garde music, <laughs> In light of what else is going on in that field, like mm -hmm. insane down tunings. Jonathan Davis has clearly not learned to sing yet because you can hear all his vocal space is like in his upper chest, his throat and in his head and not in a good way. He hasn't really learned to access his diaphragm yet. That doesn't happen until like issues in 1999, I think. Like, you get mm -hmm. a little bit of it and follow the, the leader. Um, so he's still figuring that out. He's doing his weird like uh, riddle and scat routines and uh it's really there's bagpipes the bagpipes there's... yeah the bagpipes is weird the two guitarists have a really weird they're sort of like the bizarro world version of a guitarist and thin lizzie mm -hmm. right because like those two guys were so beautifully gifted at doing these like in sync harmonies and melodies with each other and head and monkey 
are always talking to each other, like across the sonic space, just in a very like fucked up and strange way. So yeah, like looking at that, like you're right, they totally shatter the mold of like what a rock band should be. And you know, Jonathan Davis is not cool. He doesn't write about being a tough guy. You know, he's not Phil Anselmo. Phil Anselmo mm-hmm. is sort of like the upgraded version of Henry Rollins and the dude from the Cro-Mags. You know, he's just got, no one sounds like him. To this day, the only person who comes close to sounding like him is the lead singer of Edema, who was his cousin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, the thing that I think makes Jonathan Davis so different as a vocalist is not only just the the sort of scat thing, which is, the I think, the cliche that most people will point out mm-hmm. about his singing. You know, people will point to the song Twist off their second record. <laughs> yeah. Or... The, the breakdown and freak on a leash. Yeah, because um, can you imagine like going to a record exec's office and like playing the first track of Life is Peachy twist? And he's just like, <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, Rada Mdahima. So is this the single? <laughs> <laughs> but on top of that, not only is he doing these sort of like, you could kind of take this very tenuous connection to what was going on in extreme metal, like a band like Obituary, their first record barely has any lyrics and is pretty much just like death growl grunting mm-hmm, sounds. Mm-hmm. So there's there's at least like some parallel to the, wor- the world of heavy metal at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only overt death metal kind of connection that Korn has. Like there's a song on the first record that is... I think it's Baltong. The riff is a like slowed down version of a Morbid Angel song. Oh, no way. No way. Yeah. It, uh, Angel of Disease, I think, is the track. Hell yeah. But on top of that, Jonathan Davis also is on record about being more of like a new wave fan, more into Duran <laughs> Duran and The Cure, and wasn't a metal guy necessarily. He just kind of fell in to being in metal bands. And that's why he has this like completely different approach to the genre both in the terms of the way he's singing, but also what he's singing about. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was trying to figure out how to think about this, right? So I have this um, thing, which I don't know if I agree with anymore, that I totally stole from, I think, Finn McKenty, a.k.a. Sarge D, in the, in the piece, where I talk about the pendulum of music, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, when we're in the 80s, we're in, like, the high end. It's just extremely cocaine, you know, audio spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then as you move through the nineties, you go through like the mid range, which is like the universe of Steve Albini and like the pixies and in utero and stuff like that. Uh, And then suddenly you start to swing into the low end when you get to new metal and that's sort of the arc. But I also think that there's like sort of a lyrical content matches up with that audio spectrum. Right. Mm -hmm. So you get, uh, I think the band was called like Nitros, like Freight Train Coming, or like Girls, Girls, Girls mm-hmm. by Motley Crue in the 80s. And that's sort of like that high pitched, like party hard. That's what I mean by like the cocaine sound spectrum. And then in the 90s, you get like the heroin sound spectrum. <laughs> and that's, you know, which is bigger on, uh, again, mid ranges. And I think like, to me, there's no better sound than like the grunge drum tom sound. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, the toms are such a big part of that music that doesn't get discussed. But I think it's like Matt Cameron. Uh, I mean, to a lesser extent, Dave Grohl, because I think he came from like the Motorhead punk world. But like, you know, there was a great like sort of mid range quality to to how that music worked, and that's when you start to see like the plumbing of the inner psyche in a new way. Uh, Alice in Chains is a great example, I think, of just like openly doing an entire album about being hooked on drugs in a way that like I don't think Cobain was ever going to do 
it's just really open. But there was always this kind of like, if you watch the documentary Hype, which is the best documentary there is about grunge, you can find it for free on YouTube. One of the guys who grew up in Seattle says, you know, punk, or grunge isn't stupid, but there's something kind of dumb about it. Like, mm-hmm. Tad isn't stupid, but they're kind of dumb. Mud Honey isn't stupid, but there's some kind of dumb about the song Touch Me, I'm Sick. You know, and I think that's a really important element of that movement, even at its most, like, self-serious. Uh, however, uh, as we move, like, deeper into the sound spectrum, we get corn, who happens, like, right as that sort of insurgent alt-nation moment is, like, cresting and dying. And... To bring it back to Davis's lyrical content, it's like very overt lyrics about being a loser and getting the shit kicked out of you and, you know, getting like beaten by your parents and getting raped as a child, which is just so much more explicit and bleak than I would say like the higher poeticism of certain grunge bands like... Soundgarden. Like, it's interesting to, like, juxtapose something like Soundgarden's Fell on Black Days, mm-hmm. which relies a lot on, like, lyric imagery and metaphor. And then, like, Korn's Clown. Yeah, which is just a, like, primal scream therapy, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, you know. Um, and so I think that's that's one of the different... It's just, you know, I don't, to be also critical about this music, which I do truly love, like, there is sort of... You know, Rick Roderick in his series of lectures on uh, 20th century philosophy, which again, you can find on YouTube, they're great, he's great, talks about um, a general trend towards the death of interpretation. And Mm. as we see these poetic devices get like stripped away in new metal, and every new metal band is, is guilty of this, you know, it's not like Linkin Park were really concerned with um, higher lyricism, right? Like, there's no ambiguity there. Or let me put it this way. There's no mystery there that you have to, like, sit with, right, and puzzle through. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I mean, I have some uh, suspicions that it might be kind of bad in the long run. (laughs) But um, (laughs) that's just not what's happening here is we see a waning of the need for interpretation. Yeah, it's interesting because I know that one of the things that made Korn somewhat unique at the time, too, is that they never shared. I think this is actually maybe just kind of a 90s band thing is that they never printed their lyrics Mm -hmm. in any of their booklets. Mm -hmm. Um, So you were kind of like forced to engage directly with the recordings and Mm -hmm. you know if you're going to have access to these lyrics you're going to do it through the act of jonathan davis screaming them at you and i would agree like especially the early stuff is yeah no no need for interpretation it's very all on the level about what he's talking about the thing that i find interesting is that as their career goes on and as corn kind of goes from being the insurgents in the metal scene to kind of being the mainstream of heavy music mm-hmm. is that they kind of they don't have very many other things to write about or other ways to write about other things. So the same group of like lyrical cliches or lyrical tools that they have in their early records become the only tools that they can use to write about anything in the later half of their career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and that's very common. Like you know, Trent Reznor has the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except that he doesn't even write yeah. about sex anymore. Right. Yeah. Now he's a, now he's a dad and has all these kids to deal with. Yeah, so it, his songs just kind of end up being about nothing. Yeah. Which is why most of his instrumental stuff is better these days. Right. Yeah. Well, and also like I mean, he's just 
so far beyond the pale, like one of the most gifted people to come out of this moment musically that mm-hmm. it like doesn't matter. You know, Nine Inch Nails right. are my favorite band, but I don't, I have no illusions about who Trent Reznor is when he sits down to write out lyrics, you know? Um, right. Yeah. He's a, a musician that I think incidentally ended up being a songwriter rather than someone who I think is like a writer first that, that is setting his stuff to music. You know, he's a musician's musician. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He's not Dylan. I would like to talk about the sonic spectrum thing that you mentioned because there's a few different other influences that are leading corn to kind of invent this totally new sound and heavy music. There's obviously a lot has been made about the influence of hip hop on their mm-hmm, music. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically the way that, you know, they're playing in these incredibly low tunings on seven string guitars. And as a result, their their writing is definitely much more percussive. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, what I what I really love about those early corn records is the way they use the upper registers to make sound effects similar to like a DJ scratching or like a siren blaring on like a public enemy track or something like that. They take it into this like really more abstract version of rock guitar. Yeah, it sounds like chopped and screwed Tom Morello. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not as like consciously trying to ape the sounds of uh, of hip hop in the way that Tom Morello was. It's more like taking those as a a sonic concept Mm -hmm. and then just applying that to to heavy music. And you listen to those first few corn records and there's some really out there harmonic stuff going on like it's. They talk a lot about how Mr. Bungle, another like kind of weirdo California band, was mm-hmm. a huge influence mm-hmm. on their sound. And Mr. Bungle are more like just straight up like muso dudes. Like they're like showing off how many different genres they can play. And Korn take that idea and take all that jazz harmony and just turn it into like a battering ram. Well, yeah, and, yeah, they put the dumb filter on it. And I don't yeah, mean exactly. that in a bad way. <laughs> that rules. That's why Corn are a bigger band than Mr. Bungle yeah. is because they they yeah. made those tools accessible to the you know the average listener mm-hmm. in a totally different way. We should also talk about the, the Ross Robinson, who's the producer of those first two Corn records, and then much later a much worse Corn record who pushed. You know, his most famous thing is that he he kind of like pushes vocalists very very hard in the studio to not just like sing the songs, but sort of feel them. Yeah. 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 I talk about that moment in the piece of like in the Iowa record for Slipknot, he pushes Corey Taylor to a part where he was like vomiting naked on himself and cutting himself with glass in the studio, like to get a vocal part done, which I, you know, you read about that stuff or you hear about that stuff when you're a kid and you're like, Whoa, that's an intense as an adult man, like thinking about, someone who has the power to take you there is incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, that's wild. So yeah, Roth Robinson is a rock producer. I don't really know where he cuts his teeth. Um, I'm sure he works for a few people and picks up some ideas, but the thing that he understood was a, like the emotional nature of this music. And he sort of understood that the old guard of heavy, heavy metal was like, dead you know it was or it was becoming its own thing you know that it didn't really have much new to say you know at that moment anyway Mm -hmm. and you know he also produces the first couple Limp Bizkit records Limp Bizkit has a career basically because Fred Durst gave Fieldy from Korn a horrible Korn tattoo on his back that looks like more like the word horn um (laughs) while they were on tour in uh 
in Florida. Um, and that's how they mm-hmm. met Durst and that's how he got his record deal. And so like Ross Robinson would hear something like Fred Durst rapping about pissing on his neighbor's lawn and he'd be like, that's great. I want that to be a whole song. Like he just had the, he like understood what was funny and cool about that type of shithead stuff. And he also understood, you know, all these guys are from like flyover country. Mm-hmm. You know, like Iowa, Bakersfield, California, in a journal entry from the mid 80s, Henry Rollins writes that if he were a better man, he would dedicate his entire life to something that would benefit all of humanity, like, say, the complete firebombing and destruction of Bakersfield, California. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. Uh, and I've been there, and it's, it's, it's pretty bleak, you know. All these guys, except for maybe Durst, I don't know, but Corey Taylor as well, do have, like, young rape trauma. Um, that's something Corey, mm-hmm. Taylor, Corey Taylor talks about. You can see a video where he does like a, a therapy session with somebody and it's something he's totally forgotten about his life. And uh, then he remembers in the session and it's like, it's really moving. But yeah, Ross Robinson could tap into that and he understood what was going on in the audio spectrum. And like analog recording is getting better at this time too. So like Korn is really like pushing the outer limits of what Ross Robinson can capture on tape in the first two records because it's so down-tuned and because their budget's so low. But then like later on in the 90s you see I mean even on when they finally get a huge budget on Follow the Leader the uh, the technology has just improved as well in addition mm-hmm. to their budget. And you can take a look at other bands like um, oh who am I thinking of? Uh, Machine Head, you know, who can really tap into some elements of the sound spectrum that just would have sound like shit in the 80s. Or um, I'd say Tool would be Tool. another good example. Yeah, or like who's... um, Oh my God, what is their name? There's Edge Crusher is one of their songs. Oh shit, Fear Factory? Yeah, <laughs> yeah dude, yeah, Fear Factory. Um, yeah, yeah, like that whole thing. The alt metal thing mm-hmm. really benefits from... The improvements of that. So Ross Robinson was was that guy. He captures. He is to new metal. What say? Who's the dude that runs American Records? Rick Rubin is to mm-hmm. Def Jam. Yeah, exactly. He's the sonic architect of the whole thing. Yeah. Like all the like even a band like Limbiscuit going to record with Ross Robinson is because of the Corn connection. You know, people are kind of chasing those first few Corn records for a while. And you see, the funny thing is like when the more the old guard of heavy metal starts trying to chase it too in a in very embarrassing fashion in the mid 90s like there's some really god awful slayer records where they start playing slow and trying to do the bounce riffs and it's just a complete oh, it's mess. so bad or machine heads the red Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. which uh, Phil Anselmo further displaying like how absolutely racist uh, and kind of disgusting he is as a person referred to that as their N-word record. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. That guy. <laughs> fuck that guy. I love Pantera, but like, fuck that guy. <laughs> Do you know Langdon Hickman? He's another Invisible Oranges guy. Uh, he goes by um, I Love Death Metal or I, I'm Listening to Death Metal on uh, on Twitter. He's an interesting dude. Uh, but his his quote about Pantera is like, yeah, I love that band that is Rex Brown and three robots that make music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
Rex Brown, by the way, the- just shout out to that dude. Very underappreciated bass player, in my personal opinion. Um, <laughs> suffered under uh, Dimebag's guitar tone, but talented guy. Right, yeah. I mean, that's the other sort of, you know, before we started recording this, you sent me an article that Doc Coyle of God Forbid wrote about the other changing sonics in metal at the time, which is going towards this like super clicky, mm-hmm. scooped mids uh, Dimebag sound. And that stuff while it all sounds like well-produced and good and the songs work, you can just tell that a band like Korn is operating on a whole other level in terms of sonic frequencies. You know, when you get to hearing something in the middle part of their career, like here to stay and they're just going directly for the gut, like the low frequency gut punch and doing it with actual pop production and, I think that that's just like, there's no turning back at that point. Like all old, that's kind of the dividing line between what sounds like modern metal and new metal and what sounds old fashioned, you know, by comparison. Yeah, no, I think that's true. It's weird. So, okay. So a few different things are like happening in this moment, right? We've already talked about like the death of grunge, the insurgence of pop punk. I like joking. You said to you that like pop punk is for kids whose parents got divorced and new metal is for kids whose parents beat you. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like, don't, please don't cancel me. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, I, I only, I'm only talking about like preoccupations, you know, um, right. and, uh, in the music. And then we have the whole like alt metal thing, which is happening by the way, like people should go check out Finn McKenty's video on alt metal and his one on new metal, uh, where I disagree with him in some places in a very nerdy music way, but he's, uh, he's got some great things to say about that. So you get stuff like um, who, who am I thinking of? Like River Runs Red, Rollins Band, uh, who I would argue the second and third records are like canonical, like Swans esque music, and all this stuff. Uh, Helmet, yep, you know, Primus Helmet, Primus Helmet that are all just White Zombie, right? Yeah, like you know, I mean, I just think about this because this happened. Les Claypool showed up to audition for Metallica after Cliff Burton died. Yeah, the the mind boggles trying to imagine what the and they were, what on earth they, that would even sound like. Yeah, I mean, he like played whatever they had, and they basically just told him he was too good. <laughs> like they were like, "Yeah, we get it. Like you're talented, but that's like way too fucking much." Um, and so I think that shows the dividing line. And like, there are different sonic concerns. And so I'm doing this whole laying out what's happening here to showcase like there are a bunch of different things that seem to like overlap with each other in a weird way. And they're all like conflicting histories because a lot of these guys were like fans of each other, you know, Mm -hmm. however the fans might feel about that. These guys were often all fans of each other. Exactly. A lot of that sort of like fan bickering is really just identity forming high school stuff. You know, it's like deciding I'm the kind of person that wears a corn t-shirt versus the kind of person that wears a blink One Eighty Two t-shirt. But all of these sort of things like the music industry is relatively small. So all of these bands play with each other, have been at festivals together. They all inevitably are going to be buddy, buddy to some extent. Right. They all did Ozfest, And so like you can actually like, this might be an interesting way to think about it. If you look at these bands and you literally cross out which part of the audio spectrum they're most concerned with, like until you get to corn, you'll realize that literally the only thing left is like low end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. just go through, cross it out, and, like, there you are. Yeah, and so I think, and also, like, no one can really imitate what they did. That's the other thing. Yes, too many different unique elements all at once. Like, you can't get 
both the the seven string guitar interplay you can't get that as well as jonathan davis's unique vocal approach on top of the unique like clicking bass sound and then i think crucially underrated is how good their original drummer uh, yeah dude, that david guy's Silvera is yeah what's his name he's uh david silvera yeah, I think God, is that guy name. that guy's groove man like fucking rock solid so good so good he's also just like weird like like off kilter stuff i don't have like a drum background i actually don't have any music background other than recording which is why i talk about like audio spectrum stuff because that's like what Mm -hmm, i know mm -hmm. but just like really surprising like offbeat snare stuff is something that i've noticed with him i don't know if that's what you call it but it's definitely much it's coming from much more of like a funk background and funk articulation whereas i think like one of the ways that Korn got noticeably worse in their later career, you know, like most rock bands that last this long, they've had a few lineup changes. And I think underrated is that they got this guy, Ray Luzier, mm-hmm. who's a really like technically proficient drummer. You know, he's like an MI graduate and yeah. is like a studio dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you watch videos of him playing blind with Korn live and he's there's no sense of groove to it anymore. No, like he's, no. he, I mean, he, he sees he, the grid, yeah, but, he, and he's playing the parts, right. Yeah. But he's just adding all these extra 16th notes and shit that just do not need to be there. No, he's, he's a one take Tommy, you know, like that's the, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, no, it's, it's a great gig and I'm, I'm happy that he, he yeah, has but such it doesn't, a, a it good doesn't, stable job. It doesn't work well with their sound, you know? And like, Mm-mm, Silvera left no. for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the band really starts to fall apart after the untouchables Mm -hmm. right because the other thing is like people need to understand and is that like columbine and woodstock 99 are like huge referendums on new metal and it might seem strange to say that to be like oh how could anything be so culturally big because we just don't live in those moments anymore like that's just not how culture is structured but like there was a decades-long political project people call it neoliberalism or whatever i have doubts about that being an effective term i will say this the idea goes back all the way to like the habsburg empire which is that you would have economic decisions are taken out of the realm of politics uh, but national cultural cultural ones are and so the way that works when you have like big print publications big networks and they all have like mopsonomies or monopsonomies however you say that word large market shares that determine the mm-hmm. public discourse and if you have you know the end of history things are there is no alternative like this is just the way we do things then you're going to have big cultural fights right like that's 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 where it is and so when this happens it changes things for these bands you know suddenly they have doubts about what they can be and who they can be and what they can do. And Jonathan Davis is pretty open about that because he played Woodstock 99. He blames it on Fred Durst. It was a difficult moment in the friendship between those bands, actually, when Fred Durst basically incites a fucking riot that leads to like a mass rape event. And, and then these kids who look alternative or whatever, there's all sorts of bullshit around that between Klebold and Harris uh, who shoot up Columbine. But, the whole thing is just like, well, they're the type of kids who listen to X, Y, or Z music. You know, Korn's adjacent to like Rammstein and like stuff like that. You know, Rammstein plays on the Family Values tour with them. And so mm-hmm. that's like a whole cultural moment. And then Linkin Park sort of comes in and their big thing is they do new metal without swearing. That's a huge part of their press 
in yeah. 2000s. People yeah, forget that. But like Chester Bennington being asked earnestly why he doesn't swear in a Rolling Stone <laughs> interview. <laughs> like I just like think about that because this is the way in which like culture was like super like now culture is like way more scolding. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but and back but back then it was like really like uh, problematic in a lot of ways. Sure. But like very like conservative at base in a way that it's not now. And it's hard to remember. But then like 9-11 happens and like all of this like weird like internal cultural shit in America and cultural rebellion is just sort of like irrelevant. And it's like, what do you what, what do we need corn for? Like what do, what do you need? Like what's happening there? Yeah. The, the idea of like being hung up because i think like you know we talk about how corn has like all of these like actually serious trauma in their lyrics mm-hmm. but as they are consumed by fans most of the people who are listening to them you know have not been sexually abused by their parents are not addicted to methamphetamine most of their most of their fans are you know probably going through some rough shit as you describe in your in your article but I think that there's this conception of that corn is singing about like teen angst mm-hmm. and yeah. suddenly that just does not play in the face of like na- like national level anxiety and trauma. They just don't have the, the tools for that. No, 9-11 ended Marilyn Manson's career. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's that's the most succinct way I can make that point. It ended his career. Yeah. You know, I think you get like some bands kind of pivot into being like anti Bush as the source of their like rebellion, you know, like even like nine inch nails, uh, the hand that feeds and all that. Yeah. Yeah. There is kind of like a a wave of, or like American idiot by green day. There's, there's like a political shift that some bands go through during that time, but corn don't do that either. They're kind of adrift. No, they don't. Yeah. They don't become, um, they don't become, uh, what is it? What is, what did Finn McKenty call it? They don't become military wife corps. Right. Yeah. They can't do that. They can't, they're not they're not they're neither like jingoistic in their new presentation or like countercultural anti-war in their presentation they just kind of keep doing what they're doing the one blip in that is the album issues i i really really like this album it's it's probably my favorite i wouldn't re-listen to it and you're absolutely right it is like front to back the most sophisticated piece of music they have ever put out i mean it's right when you can tell jonathan davis has started taking singing lessons Yep. There's a lot more harmonies, uh, layered sounds and whatnot. But what strikes me upon re-listening to it is it's their like meta album about fame. You know, it's the it's the first corn album that's about being corn. Yeah. Like there's all these songs about like internal turmoil in the band mm-hmm. or feeling like basically in this like parasitic relationship with their fans and this kind of like culture of constantly being watched and i think every good band has at least like you're allowed one i'm famous and this sucks album yeah even jawbreaker has that record i think it's bivouac Mm -hmm. you know where they have like two songs about being in jawbreaker and hating it but to your point like after you know 9-11 and after the iraq war begins there's also this other stuff that's going on in corn's arc that kind of like throws them completely off axis. Mm-hmm. You have their one of their guitarists, Head, who is addicted to meth at the time, leaves the band and becomes a born-again Christian in 2006, I believe. Around the same time, they like have a record deal that ends, and the entire sound of like rock music in the mainstream has completely shifted away from them towards, you know, on one end, you have like the sort of like reactionary indie rock 
like garage rock uh, revival that happens yeah. sort of like the cool kids being like enough with this new metal shit right the, uh, I would going say, back to like real rock and roll uh, the nouns that's the mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that, that moment the nouns yeah right and then on the other side you have like all of the younger kids going for like the sort of emo my chemical romance the used that world yeah they take and up so that new metal, space for sure right yeah new metal is kind of left adrift in the in the mid 2000s but before we get there i do want to go back and kind of talk about some of the other stuff that you bring up in your original article. You mentioned that you were inspired to write it in college. Were you originally approaching it from a musical perspective or was it from the sort of sociological aspect? Cause that takes up a huge part of what you're writing about. Right. Yeah. That, the, uh, that was, I think the main focus of that piece. So I remember when it happened, let me, let me think real quick. So at some point in college, I can't remember which summer it starts to happen, but I start to just return to this is back when you could still download shit off. Like I think I was using soul seek RIP and I started, I had to bike like from white Creek, New York to Bennington, Vermont, which is about eight miles every day to work on campus at Bennington college. I, after I, the first summer I came home to Illinois from Chicago, I ended up working a minimum wage house painting job with no safety equipment. And I was like, I'm never going to do shit like this again. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed in Vermont to work on stuff. And so I had a lot of time to listen to music. And so uh, aside from like the standard mix I would listen to when I biked, I started to go back into what had happened in that cultural moment. Because, you know, I don't have any sociological training. I didn't study that in college. I didn't study philosophy in college. Uh, I studied poetry and music recording. But when I look back on it, I had these like almost sociological instincts or whatever, where I wanted to like culturally understand what was happening uh, when this music. So I would talk to uh, a close friend of mine to this day, Charles, who's my weightlifting buddy in college. And I'd sort of like spit what were honestly the seeds of what that article became. And it just never let me go. And it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And largely it was because I didn't have like the intellectual tools or whatever. Um, and so I had to cultivate those over a really long period of time. And I think it was also like I needed to become more mature inside myself. You know, in the intervening time, like I got sober and like stuff like that. And once I had some like sober time under my belt, like reapproaching corn as like somebody who's been in and, you know, recovered or recovering. I'm not going to like litigate that 12 step program debate here on how that works. But just come through the other side of that. You know, I was just like, there was some other shit going on here that I just missed. And like, why did this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember being a teenager, you know, and I hung out with all like shithead metal kids, you know, um, in my hometown. You know, it was like them and the nerds I hung out with at the comic shop. And um, I was always wondering, like, why was it in American suburbia? Like, I grew up in like what should be a pretty idyllic suburban experience in Illinois and like everyone I knew was just extremely fucked up you know and at the same time I don't think people have this memory anymore if they grew up in suburbia and I don't I don't necessarily know where you grew up Ian but like I just want people to imagine this is something a conversation I had with Alex Doyle of Yeesh actually because he grew up in New York and he was like what's Mm -hmm. going on with all suburban shit like I feel like I missed out on something I was like a you did not B, like (laughs) just imagine every day when you're a kid there is either a house getting torn down and turned into a McMansion or a new house getting put up where an empty lot was 
for years, mm -hmm. which tells you like everything's okay. At some implicit level, wealth is just increasing. Dear listener, I have to apologize, but at this moment in the conversation, our recording devices failed us. As you can tell, Emmett was beginning to explain the lived experience of being 18 in mid-American suburbia during the peak of New Metal's popularity. You will have to take my word for it that he spoke very eloquently about this subject. The good news is that Emmett did a terrific job of describing these conditions in his original article on Invisible Oranges, and that you can find a link to this article in the description of the podcast. Again, my apologies for the interruption. There was a brief audio error, but we're discussing Finn McKenty, specifically his idea of the sort of the arc of critical acclaim and popularity. Yeah. And so a band can be like the cool new thing for a while becomes popular, then becomes hated by the critical consensus. But then there's a swing when the people that grew up on that band are in positions of power. Yeah. In the industry. Yeah. Yep. And suddenly those bands become legends and revered. And I sort of was self-consciously aware of the fact that like as a new metal kid arriving into, you know, a place of like, I didn't, I, you know, the, being the head editor of Invisible Oranges is, was not a supremely important position for me, but it, in the grand scheme of things, like there's obviously much bigger metal magazines, but I sort of knew that this was my chance to like, as someone who grew up listening to new metal, kind of put my finger on the scale a bit and see if we could actually take the genre seriously. Yeah. Like before you had pitched me that piece, I sort of took like a, a crack at, the idea of like why is new metal so hated like what are the sort of like unconscious biases that are leading people to like write about about it in a certain way like i remember when like king 810 first came out hell yes hell yes and, <laughs> yeah oh man like, i that band needs to learn how to arrange a song but uh i love king 810 <laughs> And, you know, there's that music video that came out that was just like all like security footage of like robberies and, you know, people getting like hit by cars and just like really like heinous, yeah, awful kill footage. Them kill them all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Hang and, their bodies in the hall. Yeah. And they're for, so for context, they're from Flint, Flint they're Michigan. From, they're from they are from Flint. Those guys have charges on their rap yeah. sheets. Like they are. It is not real a fucking game. Dudes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was looking at the way that like other New York metal establishments, namely Metal Sucks at the time, mm -hmm. were writing about them and writing about new metal in general. Even though King Eight Ten aren't technically a new metal band, I think they're spiritually consistent with yeah, like that type totally, of music. Totally. And the thing that I I kept coming up against, and you know, for. You know, I was I grew up in New York. Uh, that's actually how I know Alex Doyle. We were friends in high school. Oh, word! I did um, not know that. That's wild. Which, yeah, which is how I ended up meeting Greg and therefore meeting you. The experience was that like somewhere just out there, outside, like across the Hudson, there were just like these crowds of like angry dudes in the cornfields, like tearing down houses mm -hmm. and be like. It, it, there was a sense of, that like it was this lawless hellscape mm -hmm. once you got into the middle of America. And I think that there's a lot of sort of like unaddressed 
like elitism at least there was at the time about new metal where it's like this is all like music for hicks and oh yeah you know, it's me. white trash music it's white trash music yeah. like that's so i would encourage everybody listening to go read nancy eisenberg's uh white trash which is sort of the untold history of race in america in a certain way mm. in that a i think it it's a very challenging book uh in the way that you start to understand that um really uh the ways in which race was used by those in power um, to keep people who had otherwise a lot in common divided. But it speaks to a lot of, the, especially the latter half of the book, is is really more like a cultural critique of a type of resenting these people, these people from flyover country, which we see today, the deplorables, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a huge lack of um, understanding of what it's like. So, you know, I grew up in Illinois, but I had... You know, my mom was from Detroit. I had family that was like living in the fallout of Detroit, basically. You know, the cousin who got me into new metal is like exactly the type of guy that, you know, like we're talking about. And like what's happened to his life as a result of like being out there is like a fucking tragedy. And like that's the way class works. And like all these people are pissed about it, understandably. And, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of music critics are really willing to hear cultural critiques if it sounds like Gang of Four, which means it sounds (laughs) like you've read Marx once and didn't think too hard about it. And it flatters you because the story there is that you're smart, right? That you see Mm -hmm. through it all. But when you hear like David from King 810 or Jonathan Davis from Korn, you know, saying something like, there's a hundred thousand voices in me all with vendettas you know and you're like that's some like weird fucking ignorant shit i don't understand that it's in part because that's your society is structured in a way where that's not going to resonate with you yep right like that's that's the truth there you know is that that's for other people who don't understand in the same way that you do because they're fucking poor and ignorant now you might not personally feel that the point is that you don't have to really feel that. You just do it anyway. Like, that's ideology when it functions well, right? Like, Zizek likes to tell the story of the physicist Niels Bohr. And someone came to visit him in his country house, and they saw a horseshoe over his door frame, which in Europe is used to keep bad spirits out. You know, that's what that means. And and his friend says, my God, you're a man of science. You can't actually believe this. And Niels Bohr says, oh, of course, I'm a man of science. But I hear it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> right? And right. so I think what I'm hearing from you, and I think part of why we were excited, you were excited to work on this piece with me and then and talk about this again is it felt like setting the record straight. Like there are, I fucking hate most music critics. You know, like, I I really can't stand, like, most of them, I get it, like, I've done it too, you just end up writing ad copy because you're not getting paid, and like, what else are you going to do, but you want to keep writing, you want your name and bylines, because, you know, you eventually want to write the shit that you really want to write, or, you know, you don't think too hard about shit, like, you know, you went to J school, and someone unfortunately told you it would be a good idea to spend your life writing about music, and that that was a possible future for you, and maybe you're lucky enough to come from the type of the family where that's like actually an avenue where you can go but what i don't like about it 
is that because I don't really like the optimism stuff either. I thought that was like really critically unserious. It, it, it was a failed project. Right. I I think it's it was sim- that the original Poptimist wave was like equally as important for me to like break down a lot of walls that I built as the Finn McKenty stuff was. Totally. So I think in a lot of ways, that's fair. a certain kind of optimism that Finn McKenty operates in. Yeah. But where it went wrong <laughs> was that people thought that taking pop music seriously just meant liking pop music. And instead of actually being critical of it and being trying to like, yeah, people people failed to actually do criticism on the music that they were now supposed to be taking seriously, right. and instead ended up propping up a bunch of major label artists to the disservice of underground music. Yeah, totally. You know, and and it's it's like you know I have plenty of musical critiques I can make of Can't Ten. Like like I said, they can't arrange a song. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no like no sense of tension there. Like, and that sucks. Because I think that David and his crew have a lot of interesting things to say, and I want to hear them. You know, I also have problems with the way they mix their records. You know, those that's fine. But to look at that and say, like, look at this dumb shithead stuff is to fundamentally fail at your job of understanding art. You've been gifted with the life to where you get to do music criticism. And then you turn around and, like, shit on someone beneath you. I like, you know, you can cut this out or whatever, but I really have like nothing but fucking contempt for that attitude. And as somebody who has like worked construction and has largely, despite my upbringing, ended up because of the way the market has shifted, like living a grind or die working class life, like it's made me even more resentful of that stuff because I realized that the assumptions behind it are like about people I know and love. You know, mm-hmm. so I just want yeah. to say that like, <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I don't think I will cut that because I think it's kind of important and it's sort of like the emotional truth behind why talking about bands like this are is worthwhile to me. You know, um, it's something that like I, I come up from a like upper middle class background in New York and I my way of kind of bucking against that was to get into heavy metal and hardcore and all that because and I think that's like sort of I know I'm a walking cliche in that way, but what I felt was like, you know, there is a certain bloodlessness and lack of humanity in the way that a lot of people write about those genres. Like people just sort of treat it like the people making those music, like making this music aren't human in some way mm-hmm. or are not being serious or are not like expressing some kind of actual human emotion. You know, it, they're they're being written off and, you know, you go around the country and I don't know there's a lot of different angles that I could take this but like I the the thing that you're talking about is exactly why I love talking about heavy metal so much is mm-hmm. because it means a lot to a lot of people in a way that I don't think many people give it any kind of credit or credence even within the heavy metal community and luckily I think that's finally changing in part because of our generation sort of setting the record straight mm-hmm. on new metal and yeah it's like also all that original heavy metal stuff was trying to address the same issues in their own way. You know, it's not like, you know, the kids in Metallica were making fucking high art at the time. They were expressing the same kind of frustration with the state of their lives that Korn were a decade later. Yeah. You know, like I think, I think I'd put it this way, you know, there 
even in the metal community, right? Like sort of what we're talking about is that there's shit that's acceptable to like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's acceptable to be into Meshuga because they have weird time signatures, you know, you're smart. <laughs> no, it's, it's acceptable to be into uh, wolves in the throne room, you know, cause you're smart. That's not, you know, that's not like a bunch of kids in the middle of nowhere, like dangling a single SM58 from the ceiling, doing black metal, like trying to figure out how to get that on tape. These are like artists who are arranging shit, you know, like, right. And that's, that's sort of how it goes. And which I get, like, that's, that's sort of what happens, you know, but I didn't get into this shit because like, I thought it was smart, you know, mm-hmm. I got into this shit cause I was fucking angry. I got into this yeah, shit for good I, reason. Yeah, I woke up every day like fucking really pissed off, you know, because like there was a time in my life where I was in danger of drinking myself to death because I wanted to be someone else. And I thought if I drank enough, I'd end up there, you know, um, and uh, that's that's why I love a big payoff riff. You know, yeah. when I hear the opening of Here to Stay. I just want to fucking break every stick of furniture in my entire apartment. And that's fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. And like that's worth or, paying attention to because that's that's a sincere human emotion. That is a reptile thing that is being tapped into. Now I get that I can do all this sociological stuff and I love that. I think that's can be profound. I love when other people do it. You know, I love when Mark Fisher does it. But at the end of the day, like music, art, no matter what anybody says, ends up being an incredibly intimate emotional engagement and there is this idea that is pervasive which i understand and it's that anger is something to be dismissed that it's unintelligent and that it's inarticulate and i think since 2016 we should maybe have a referendum on that assumption about what anger is and what it does and that it's worth sitting down and trying to figure it out Because if anybody listening to this or out in the world says, like, oh, I'm not angry or whatever, maybe that's true, but I fucking doubt it. You're at least angry with yourself. Because every day you wake up with the narrative drive in your head, just like all of us. And if you're anything like me, and I think I'm like a lot of people, because, you know, humanity ties us all together. There's no time where you independently investigate your inner psyche and only come up with good evidence. Life is fundamentally painful. It's worth taking a look at. There are plenty of critiques I can make of this music. I've made them on this very recording. But sitting in it is a worthwhile endeavor as much as sitting down with something really arty and smart, maybe more articulate, you know, or whatever. And and that's sort of, you know, if we're going to take a look at this podcast in like three stages, we open with what we noticed we had a long conversation about what that means and like now we're coming into the why it matters part which is like the three steps of any analysis you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like this would be my argument for that i remain a sentimental humanist at the end of the day and that i think that art is a profound vehicle to understand both yourself and other people fuck yeah i agree i agree with all of that before we wrap up there actually are two other pieces of what what we noticed that i'd like to cover yeah, totally. Um, because there's this entire, the third decade of Korn's career is kind of 
the weirdest to talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and I, people generally won't talk about it for good reason because mm -hmm. it's not the their best music. But I, I am always fascinated by the sort of tailing off of a band, mm -hmm. you know, when they stop being particularly relevant and start kind of grasping at straws. So after Head Leaves, they make two records that are basically pop albums. You know, they they hire this songwriting team, The Matrix, to oh, come really? in. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's wild. Yeah, it's it is a a gutsy move and I think it's like not too dissimilar. Like the thing that I love about Korn is they kept trying to be at the cutting edge of making heavy metal and making heavy music sound radio accessible and sound like other stuff that was happening on the radio, whether it be playing guitars like turntables and down tuning. So you have that sort of like gut thump hip hop hit that other metal bands were not trying to do at the time or in the mid two thousands kind of going down this pop lane. And that's where you get songs like coming undone, which we've both talked about is very, very good, like top tier corn song. Yeah. That song's amazing. It's one of his best and, vocal performances, honestly. Oh, it's a, amazing melody it is yeah. like such deft writing melodically over this like really simple but just perfectly catchy riff and it kind of goes off the rails for a while they have this the second self-titled album which is a, a mess mm -hmm. they bring in Atticus Ross who's most famous for working with Trent Reznor and they kind of turn into an industrial band but not really yeah it's a lot of like half-hearted uncertainty in their sound they go they try and do another ross robinson record the the third self-titled which i just think is a complete disaster kind of to your point about like what it's like imagining the ross robinson process as an adult mm -hmm. and then thinking like these are like grown men now and ross robinson's trying to do that same sort of like near abusive production technique with them and it just doesn't work it's it's a very flat, lifeless recording mm -hmm. of a band like desperately trying to recapture an old sound. But then, and this is where it kind of comes full cir circle in an interesting way. This is now right around the time of the 2008 financial crisis mm -hmm. and the housing market collapse that you allude to. And one of the interesting things that I think about that cultural moment is the explosion of EDM oh, following yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And you know, uh, there's a few writers that have written about, like Emily Yoshida, who used to write for Grantland, has written about this, I think, about how there's this kind of like the millennial moment of all graduating college having fuck all to do, mm -hmm. no economy to, to join, you know, no workforce, no place to live. <laughs> and suddenly EDM is this kind of like, it's the end of the world, but we're going to turn it into a party yeah. sort of vibe. Mm -hmm. And Korn smartly jump on board <laughs> they make this dubstep record that is not good but is fucking fascinating yeah it is a really fascinating album so you know this is worth talking about for a lot of reasons but you know my personal experience with this is i graduated college in 2011 right mm -hmm. i moved to tallahassee florida for a girl big mistake 10 out of 10 don't recommend and in the fall of 2011, and I think it's in October, right before I moved there, that um, zero jobs are added to the economy. Zero, right? Yeah. And the first job I got was working at the Hot Topic in the Governor Square Mall in Tallahassee. And we're making part-time minimum wage. 
my first day was um, the midnight to 6 a.m. shift on Black Friday. Jesus. Uh, and the corn record, Skrillex was huge. Uh, whatever, Scary Fairies and Sad Sprites, whatever that album's called, had just come out. And uh, I had never really heard dubstep. And I was like sort of amazed that Korn had cut this dubstep album. It just felt like profound confusion. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's how I would describe both that period of my life um, and sort of, I think, the, the spans of a few years, you know, after 2008, um, we all start to realize, like, what really happens. Because, you know, Occupy doesn't happen until, like, 2011, right. right? Like, that's how long it takes for people to absorb, like, really what happened. I would say it sort of goes like this. Like, there's this big party because it's, like, there's, like, a nihilism in that. And it's also the Obama years. And the mm-hmm. Obama years, like, felt like things were going to hold together. You know, like, I think it's Todd in the Shadows, the YouTube guy, points yeah. out that at the beginning of the 2010s, like, you know, around 2013, but let's say the beginning of the decade, like, one of the major songs is Pharrell's Happy. Yep, 2011, number one hit. And then the decade closes with XXXTentacion's uh, Sad. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, wow. <laughs> good one, Todd. <laughs> I'm jealous of that. I know. I was, too. I was watching the video, and I was just like, fuck you. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah no i actually just went I, I had this like long listening project where i went through and i listened to every song that had ever hit number one on the billboard charts um a few months ago and there's a moment in the mid 2000s where you can literally hear what drugs everyone was taking change or the mid 2010s rather so it goes from being like all of the ecstasy and molly of the first half of the decade and then suddenly the opioids hit and the weekend starts getting number one hits. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, dude. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's, yeah, the drugs change, you know, and it makes sense because like now like the fentanyl is a big problem and like flyover country. I'm not saying that's like because of this, you know, that's, that would be insane. Mm-hmm. I'm saying is that it's resonant for a reason, you know? Right. Exactly. Um, these things are out there it's uh, and that people people tap into it you know mark fisher has some great writing about what starts to happen in music and how hip-hop starts to be more about like partying alone and like being sad and stuff like that Mm -hmm. like over the course of this decade and now i think we're at the period where like hip-hop is really like unless we're looking at marginal cases like i mean what basic guitar music is marginal now i would say that like hip-hop is the medium through which we experience music like that's the prism through which mm-hmm. all music is understood at the at the pop level at least like the mass cultural level and yeah like corn it's interesting that corn like didn't decide to do like a rap revival thing or like any of that um they've really like just tried to figure out what it's gonna be to be a mainstream pop band they have this weird like misadventure which is still some type of adventure with skrillex uh which i thought was kind of cool because i thought that like dubstep had a lot of honestly like similar qualities to new metal in a lot of ways it seemed to be like shit on by a lot way, like way more sophisticated people and i got it like when the drop would kick in i'd be like that fucking rules like if i were like plurred out on molly at like 15 and i'm 113 pounds of like dick and biceps just trying to like figure out what i want in the world if i could just listen to dubstep drops all day you right. know yep um it's it is hitting the exact same emotional yeah. sweet spot as like a great breakdown did for metalcore kids or yeah. the you know the stuff that corn were doing in the 90s it's like it is it is that type of music 
but for a different generation, 100%. Right, yeah, like Henry Rollins, like in the documentary Punk Attitude, which is like really cringy when I went back and rewatched it, but meant a lot to me when I was a teenager. You know, they have like a little thing about new metal, and of course the way new metal is talked about, and it's like, and then this unfortunate thing happened. <laughs> you know, um, but Rollins is a little more sympathetic. He was like, you know, if I were a kid and I was listening to it, and it's just like, because I'm a this, I'm a that, and then it like intercuts with like Fred Durst doing the uh, breakdown to counterfeit. I figured you mm-hmm. out, you wear a mask, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and then it cuts back to Rollins being like, "Cause I'm a," and then it cuts into <laughs> Fred Durst doing the same thing. And Rollins is like, "Yeah, like that rules." Like that's such mm-hmm. so big. Like that's of course that's what kids listen to. I get it, man. I get it. Like I don't know what Corn is doing now. I mean, we could probably have a whole episode on like the absolute disaster their 2006 unplugged session is. <laughs> um, you know, and um, it's interesting that they've been around for like this many cultural iterations. Right. Like yep. you get the new metal thing. I think something I sent you is I found someone uploaded the Metallica's MTV icon thing, uh, which was really part of a large marketing campaign for both St. Anger and um, some kind of monster, the documentary about them doing therapy uh, in the heyday of reality TV. Right. So that was a big moment. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is there's like a moment in that event like Corn, they play a cover of one and Limp Bizkit does honestly a very serviceable cover of Sanitarium. And, uh, but there's a moment there where Michelle Branch comes out with a bunch of troops and all these dudes talk about how much they love Metallica. Mm -hmm. So like Korn's there for like the complete like right wing military empire shift, you know, they've managed to be like somehow on the outside of everything. Cause like, even if guitar music's big in the late nineties, like Korn was not moving units like in sync. Yeah, they just weren't. I mean, they were they were doing great, but they were not doing in sync Backstreet Boys numbers. Yeah. It's not comparable. No, it's not comparable at all. You know, so they've managed to like, and and then they do this like EDM thing, and you know they've tried to do a couple political songs here or there, and really have revealed that they have like about the level of political sophistication as like head PE before every member of that band watched Zeitgeist state times in a row. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's like some, a lot of like Illuminati talk in yeah, the yeah, core yeah. and political stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. Like, I totally get that because like, you know, um, I think it's easy to really like shit on that stuff because it is like funny and like not true, but it like makes sense. Like it's uh, annoying to figure out what's going on like in the world. And most of that stuff is like emotionally right. Like it turns out after Epstein, like all the pizza gators were right in a way they didn't expect to be and, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that. So I don't want to like I... do a whole rant about how classist <laughs> some of this stuff is and then say like uh, some of this stuff is like strictly for absolute idiots or whatever. Like I w- would like to be sympathetic to how my like country men and women like try to put the world together even if i understand it being wrong uh at a factual right. level but the, the sentiment is understandable entirely yeah like you're like well yeah the people that rule everything are bad and have like nefarious plans for us like yeah you get it so like they've been here through like you know all of that like the alex, alex jonesification of america and stuff like that you know mm-hmm. while never fully being a part of it and i think that's sort of their story they're like these permanent outliers uh their whole career yeah, that's the best way to put it. I think you knocked that out of the park. This has been a lot of fun, dude. I'm really glad we got to uh, to have this conversation. And not just fun, but like cathartic, you know? It I'm I'm really glad that we were able to sit down and 
have this cross country talk about one of the country's most interesting rock bands. Yeah, man. Like I hope it I hope it makes sense. I'm always self conscious at the end of these things because I'm just like, oh God, what have I said? Um, so you know, I hope it. <laughs> That's does what it. the editing process it's is for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just make your voice sound real good. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, um, I really appreciate you uh, uh, reaching out. Yeah, this was just a lot of fun. You know, I don't think that there. What I like about your podcast um, is that. You know, I think a lot of music interviews tend to be about uh, the personalities of the people being spoken to, which I get because that's sort of part of the biz. But it's nice that there's a forum to have like a long form discussion that feels um, accessible but serious. Thank you, man. In the wave of everything, you know, like I don't want to shit on the dudes who are just trying to make a buck at like Loudwire, you know, for doing like Wikipedia fact or fiction, you know, like that's fine but there's like other stuff that i think the culture needs and i think you know to whatever small part you're doing in that because the world is so big uh i value it very much i, I really appreciate that uh, thank you so much and thank you for supporting the the podcast you know publicly yeah and uh coming on to talk to me man this is this has been really great yeah thanks for having me thank you again for listening and thank you emmett for joining me today you can find Emmett's writing on Medium at Dumb Aristotle. You can find more episodes of the podcast on the iTunes podcast app or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash laminiforms-sounds. And you can follow me on Twitter at laminiforms underscore or on Instagram at Ian K. Corey. More episodes soon. Until next time.